Hey guys, wherever you're listening to this podcast from, if you can do me a great favor and if you can click the bell at the very top of the podcast as a follower, subscriber, like it, share it, even as a supporter, drop a couple of quiet dollars (laughs) in on the podcast to help keep us going. Guys, because everything that you donate goes towards our community organizational efforts that we do every year, which are usually in the form of free football, basketball, dance camp for kids, as well as many other empowering outlets. Now, with that being said, this is your host, none other than Anthony Mitchell, where you are listening to another edition of the End Zone Club, where we have conversation that is designed to push you from walking in potential to fulfilling your purpose. Today, guys, I really got something I want to talk about. It's a wet, nasty, one of those dreary, rainy college football days, and I am away from home, out of town in the backwoods of Mississippi. And I was uh, just wanted to throw out a conversation that I was listening to in the form of an interview with an NBA scout. And maybe he's a coach now, but he was sharing like the genesis of his career, which is where he got started. And once upon a time, this particular guy was a developmental league scout for the G League, which is the NBA. They have a developmental league where, you know, usually guys that have NBA talent usually find themselves at the developmental level if maybe there's something they have to work on or maybe they weren't drafted or maybe if they're even looking for an opportunity at getting another shot or crack at a roster. And I remember he was sharing a very, I think it's a very important conversation to have, but he was talking about when he first got this opportunity to go with this particular team, you know, he would see some of the guys and these guys were phenomenal talents. Like they were great. And having been around other NBA players and having played basketball himself, he never understood why a lot of these guys were overlooked or they didn't have that opportunity to have been drafted like some of the others. Well, To his benefit, his father was also, you know, a well-renowned NBA guy, had been coaching, had been around the league, many good players back in the 70s and 80s, on through the 90s. So he knew the way that the system worked. And he was having this conversation with his dad, and his dad said, you know what, I'll tell you what, I challenge you to sit and watch a lot of these guys. He said there's usually something that's keeping them back from reaching their full potential, and that's why a lot of these guys are in the league. So the developmental league that is. So what should have been a crack at for a lot of guys to get another opportunity to fulfill their dream as a basketball player in the NBA level? Because honestly, in America, there are a lot of young boys that grow up with that dream, a hoop dream as we call it. They wanna play professional sports. However, some guys, From the time they're coming up, you know, wherever they're coming from, maybe if they're from a smaller city or maybe if they're from a town where they're that guy, sometimes they get stuck mentally always being the guy. And sometimes as the level of competition is rising everywhere they go, it's not saying they don't have that talent. It's not saying they don't have the ability, but sometimes mentally they don't grow with that talent. So by the time they get to that point, maybe they don't know how to accept competition. Maybe they've now gone from being a starter in their place and their positions. Now you're putting them on the bench or now you're making them work for their position. Now, whereas people maybe coddled them or everybody told them how great they are. Now where they're at, they're having that challenge because nobody knows them. And sometimes mentally, some guys get stuck in this point where they never fully develop 
their opportunity. Sometimes they're not hard workers because they've been pushed through. So what his dad was trying to get him to realize was I challenge you, I guarantee if you watch some of these guys long enough, you'll see what that hang up is that's keeping them from taking the next step. And sure and behold, he would see some guys had like um, problems with discipline. Game days, you know, some guys get up, they practice the same routine every day. You know, the, some you, it's notorious that Kobe had a very strong work ethic. And he would wake up at 4 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and he would work out sometimes two and three times a day. Well, at this level, some of these guys didn't have that work ethic. He would catch some of the guys every game day. They would, leading up to the game, they'd be at the strip club spending all of their money, and this was their game day routine. They weren't doing anything to set themselves apart from the competition. And then some guys thought themselves to be too good to be on this level. So they developed this mindset like, I'm not going to do the little things the coach asks. So they started realizing that some of these guys had attitude problems. Some of these guys had work problems. Some of these guys had discipline problems with their lust and affection. Then they had some players that now, you know, maybe they grew up poor. They didn't have a lot. Now they've got more money than they've ever had, and now they've got eating problems, and now which lends to conditioning problems. And when you're not conditioned right in the game of basketball, what does it do? It puts you at a disadvantage because you cannot run with the competition. So what he started seeing was some guys never looked at this as a challenge that could really bring out the best in them. Some of them usually would whittle down through the cracks, and then nobody would know what would happen to them. And... They missed out on that other opportunity. But then you would have those guys like Rajah Bell and guys that, you know, maybe weren't well-known guys. They would use this as a chance to work at their craft, to work at their skills, because they saw every challenge as an opportunity to get better. And that's the highlight of today's conversation. How do you view some of your challenges? Do you look at challenges as a way to wilt? Do you see challenges and you think, okay, I can't get through it? Or do you approach it head on and work hard and chisel at that rock that is in front of you until it looks like a sculpture that you wanted? This guy would later go on to work with many top name talents, but he always remembered that foundation that no matter where you are, you always have to put that same effort in. Or some guys, what would happen, they would work from the developmental G League and they would get in the league and they wouldn't put that same effort out because now they felt like they made it. Some guys were just happy being on an NBA roster and people having their jerseys, whereas other people were happy with setting themselves apart from the rest of the pack. That's because they looked at every promotion, every opportunity as a new challenge, as a new opportunity, just as a new horizon to get better day by day. And that's something that even a lot of us adults, we are probably challenged in that we can easily get comfortable when we have superseded our goals. But the reality is a lot of the limits that we have on us are limits that we ourselves have conformed to. If people look at you and realize that you are not the kind of person that's just complacent with making $5 more an hour than you made last year, you're not just complacent with, you know what, just a little bit I've got, I'm fine. Some people thrive on taking challenges and exalting to the next level. Which brings me to my next point. One guy that I really want to highlight today who had that same mindset, I got an opportunity here several years ago. There was a movie that came out, and I'm, probably, I'm sure it's a movie you can relate with. And the name of the movie was Race, and it was centered around like race, like R-A-C-E, not 
race as in, you know, your racial color, but in running. And what that movie was based on was a highlight of the life of Jesse Owens. So we saw parts of the movie here a couple of years ago, didn't think much about it. Uh, Jesse Owens was a very revered African-American black guy, racer, runner, extraordinary athlete who basically defied the odds of the world. Back in the early 1930s, Jesse, well, let me rewind a little bit before I get into the story of Jesse. So back here a few years ago when the movie came out, I was working in Backwoods, Alabama, and I mean, I'm in the middle of nowhere and just boom, out of nowhere, I run into this big sign that's like birthplace of Jesse Owens. So it's right over there by where I'm working. So I decided I just wanted to pull through the parking lot. I mean, I knew the, I knew the place was probably closed because it's early in the day or whatever. So I just happened to pull up and they've got like a historical marker out there. So I take a picture and in the museum, there's a lady, doors are locked and everything, but she comes out. Of course, I'm in my company truck. She comes out. She said, sir, why don't you take a moment to come in and take a look around? It's a nice little museum they've got there in Aliceville, Alabama. So I climb, I go in and they've got all kind of relics from the movie race and they tell a lot of his story. And I just wanted to share a few things that I learned while I was in there because Jesse was me seeing where he was born because right where his museum is at, there's a field kind of like right caddy corner to the museum. And it was like an old baseball field, probably at one point was a sharecropping point. And he was born like in a shotgun house out in that field. And that house that he was born in still sits on the property. And I got a chance to go in the house. And for those of you who have never seen me, I'm not the tallest of individuals. I'm five, nine and a half, basically five, 10 in boots. And I walked in the home and there was a lot of places that I had to kind of bend my head and, and, and tilt over to walk through because it's a small home. It's a one bedroom home, big pot belly stove, very humble beginning, wood plank floors. Um, you know, they even had some of the original brooms that these guys were using to sweep the floors in the home. And it was like a, it was like a, a corn husk broom. The bristles were made from like straws of, you know, hair from horses and like crazy things. It was a humble beginning for a lot of people. That would be a challenge. Some people that are born in that kind of environment where they don't have anything, sometimes they conform mentally to that. But for Jesse, that being his background, when during the Great Migration, when a lot of blacks were moving to other places looking for greater opportunity, Jesse's family migrated to Ohio, where it was actually there in Ohio that he began to uh, build his name as a runner, as a racer in the Ohio State University heard about this guy, offered him a scholarship, but there was a lot of strange provisions about this scholarship because of course, that was during a time of segregation. So he, excuse me guys, he couldn't eat with his teammates. He couldn't dorm with his teammates, even a lot of places he couldn't sit with his teammates. So here's this guy that's developing his name as a great racer, great runner, great track and field star. And he's still treated like a second class citizen, even amongst his teammates. So this was like around 1933, I think it was 1936. During this time, there was something going on in the world called the rise of this superpower called the Nazi power, which Hitler was in charge of. And the Olympics was taking place in like Berlin, Germany. And just to give you a backdrop, Hitler is in Germany. The Olympics is there. So guess what happens? There's a lot of people that are now um, 
pushing towards boycotting the Olympics. You know, a lot of the Jews were pushing it because Hitler had a lot of anti-Semitic views and people were even pushing the United States to join in with them. And I believe the president was Dwight D. Eisenhower. And like any slop, yuck mouth um, political guy would do, he refused to take a side. He refused to push the issue. And, you know, even a lot of blacks did not feel comfortable because Hitler pushed this great Aryan theory that the Aryan nation was superior to all other nations. So you got a guy like Jesse, who I felt like was used by God. I think the attitude he had was used by God where everybody around him is talking about, let's boycott the Olympics. Jesse's like, no, I want to go and I want to. I want to go and show Hitler that he doesn't know what he's talking about. So Jesse goes out to the 1936 Olympics in Germany. And I think he was one of like 17 other blacks. And he goes out there in the face of Hitler, who has said all kinds of crazy, crazy theories um, about this. And of course, it's in Germany and Germany did win a lot of medals that year. However, Jesse went out there and done his thing, y'all. He represented, not just in the face of Hitler, but you also have to say he represented in the face of even the segregation, the oppression that he was experiencing in his own country. Well, Hitler's right-hand man had mentioned to him before, I think he was on the sanctioning body of the Olympics, that, you know, it would be a good gesture if he would shake the hands of uh, all the Olympians that weren't German, that won and Hitler refused to shake anybody's hand. But he did want to congratulate Jesse because uh, as history would go, he realized the fallacy of his thought when God used Jesse Owens to break that back of Aryan suppression there on a great world stage. But to Jesse's surprise, when he came home, his president refused to meet with him as well as any other Olympic runner, racer, Olympic winner, anyone that was uh, American on that stage. Now, it's a very weird approach to take, but there was a lot of pressure and there were a lot of people that were writing Dwight Eisenhower telling him it would be a go good showing of solidarity as well as unity for more than the 12 million blacks that were here in this country. As you guys know, during the 30s, there was still, you know, this prevailing thought of se segregation and separation. But there were some people that were moving towards unifying and bringing in more of a, uh, a, an American holistic point of view. So Jesse didn't feel like he was snubbed by Hitler. He felt like he was snubbed by Eisenhower. Well, as the story would later on go, um, Jesse would be honored by many other presidents. And ultimately, I think it was in 1975, he received like the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest award any civilian in, a, in, you know, in the world, I would say, could make. Of course, the Nobel Peace Prize. But that's one of the highest awards anyone could ever make. Now, according to the movie, if you saw the movie race, like many other historical black movies, there's always like a centralized figure that's brought into the movie that plays the role of a savior. However, it's often downplayed the real experience that a lot of these guys were forged in and the fiery furnace of affliction, 
uh, having nothing, having come from nothing, feeling like they had more to gain than they had to lose. That was often the backdrop that a lot of these people had. So as I was mentioning earlier, sometimes when people are coming from these environments where they don't have anything and they're being born and they're being shaped and they're being molded, some people get stuck right there. As you know, we call it now, I come up from the mud. Right. Well, some people come up from the mud, but mentally they never grow from that. You're seeing with each challenge that Jesse had first being born in a shotgun house, probably as a as a sharecropper, you know, probably as a time where they didn't have, you know, access to a lot of things that we have now and probably even take advantage of. His mind didn't stop there. You know, even the great migration moving to Ohio, a new place. You're moving up north. I mean, I'm not sure who he knew or who he didn't know, but that's a new environment. Things are a little different when you're far away from home in Alabama. But guess what? He he advanced there and he kept climbing up, climbing up, climbing up, even to winning a medal and coming back and not being recognized by his own nation. He did not stop there. And now as a result, he is forever immortalized in American culture as being one of the greatest humans that has ever lived. And I hear these stories, guys, and I am truly inspired because it's like, God, what am I doing with my challenges today that will ultimately years from now I'll be remembered by? Am I wilting in the face of pressure? Am I wilting in the face of adversity? Am I encountering new challenges that are different than before? And am I am I coming up with new ways? You know, sometimes I talk about this, sometimes I don't. But I'm the child of an immigrant. My mother came over from Jamaica. And I remember hearing my grandmother who came over here. From, of course, y'all may not know this, but Jamaica is actually a third world country. Having six kids and she prevailed. And she had a, a true story of triumph over tragedy. She came to this nation. She worked hard cleaning houses, working in hospitals, scrubbing floors, three jobs a day, working, you know, uh, working her body to the, her hands to the bone. And she saved up enough money, even living in people's basements. She was hit by a car when she first got here. But guys, she worked through all of that and moved all six of her kids over here to the States and gave them an opportunity. I remember my mother sharing stories growing up. They had wood plank floors and they had to get down and they had to scrub them by hand. And of course, you have to use a toothbrush to get in between the, the cracks and the crevices. Even at the five years of age, they were cooking. They were having responsibilities cleaning kitchen because where they were coming from or cleaning the kitchen and you're having great big pots and, you know, their living was not like our living. Maybe they had chickens running around the yard that they had to go out and and wring the necks of the chickens and, you know, from there, cook the food, whatever. But that's where they come from. So it gave them a sense of self. It gave them a sense of perfect purpose. It gave them them work ethic. It gave them ingenuity. It taught them even in less than ideal situations, this is how I'm going to go about living. And even when they came here, they never lost that sense of ingenuity. From there, my mom would join the military. She would have a 16-year career, you know, a Desert Storm war veteran. And ultimately, that was my model for life. Seeing her ingenuity, seeing how hard she worked, seeing how she served her country, it taught me that you cannot make excuses just because you've had a hard lot in life, just because you've had some challenges, it does not mean that your mindset can't begin to get better. It can't begin to get harder. It can't keep pushing against the stone of oppression and challenge and hindrance that's in front of me and not realizing that the more I'm pushing against
against this challenge, ultimately the stronger I get, the, the harder I push this weight, the more repetitions I get trying to get out of this hole, this rut, this situation, the closer I am to being able to achieve my goals. So guys, if there is ever a highlight that you get from this conversation, that's not being ashamed to look at your challenges on every different level you're facing. And being ashamed to tackle them head on because ultimately it's those that have a mindset of domination. It's those that have a mindset that I'm a victor and not a victim. It's those that have that mindset that even when the unfair things of life happen, you don't stop there. I challenge you guys, keep on living. Keep on fighting. Keep on pushing. Keep on living to see another day because guess what, guys? Even if you can't see the sun today, the sun will shine again. And until next time, this is Anthony Mitchell, and you are enjoying another episode of the End Zone Club. Hey, I just wanted to come back real quickly because this whole episode, I was greasing and brushing the scalp of uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, but actually it was Franklin D. Roosevelt, who I should have been mentioning that was the president during the time of Jesse Owens, who was not born in Aliceville, but Oakville, Alabama. Guys, I stand corrected. So every time you hear that name, think Franklin D. Roosevelt.